there are no uh, constant routine. Always there is a change every week. Uh, I, I believe sometimes every day they change. But usually I will say in general, they are fit formulations for some clients. For some, uh, I do it, uh, analysis, data analysis of their information. And also the topic that I like more is doing the meta-analysis studies. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Um, today we are doing a pivot on our normal podcast, and we are moving to a day in the life of different people in the poultry industry. So today with me, I have um, Sandra Serrate, and we're doing a day in the life of a poultry nutritionist. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Elizabeth, to have me here. I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you about this today. Um, since one of my fields is nutrition, I love talking to other nutritionists, especially in different parts of the world and getting a, a good idea about what they're doing in their daily nutrition um, so your areas of expertise are super interesting to me. Um, some of them are broiler breeder nutrition, um, broiler nutrition overall, and specifically some amino acid and body composition. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what your daily routine is like as a nutritionist? Uh-huh. There are, um, there are no uh, constant routine. Always there is a change every I, I believe sometimes every day they change, but usually I will say in general, they are fit formulations for some clients. For some, uh, I do it, uh, analysis, data analysis of their information. And also the topic that I like more is doing the meta-analysis studies. I do my own meta-analysis the studies or topic of topics that the client have or coming in the field that is uh, is that area is that great area in the knowledge of nutrition that so in that way I, I usually do meta analysis and sometimes I try to dig some old information and new information so so it, this is that the part the fun part for me. <laughs> In the nutrition area. And also the interviews, 
the, the experience with the clients that we have in the field test. So every, every week we have meetings with some clients that show the internal data. So we discuss about that field test that we are doing. That part also is becoming other part of the knowledge that, that we can, we can process that to give more information. A feedback to them. <laughs> so um, within your uh, nutrition consulting work, um, what is the split? Are you working about half and half with the broiler breeders and actual broilers, or do you find yourself, um, you know, seasonally working with different ratios of those birds? Yeah, usually they are both. They are both because companies have broilers and broiler breeders and broiler chickens. Usually we have both. But for some companies, I focus or for example, one company focused doing more field tests for broiler breeders. So because they are they are a huge company that they like to do more research in that area, so new challenge for the breeder lines. So in that way we test in the field test new. What are your major challenges with working with the broiler breeders? The the major right now is what well, the purpose is to have more chicks per hen house. This is the main issue. And um, for them, for so line, they are they are they don't have a good egg persistence. From another, the hatchability is reduced at the end of after fifty fifty five weeks or forty five even they they tend tend to reduce the hatchability for some lines. So these are the two main aspects in the broiler breeder world. So how, how do you balance um, keeping the hens alive? Because I know there, there are issues with maintaining and controlling weight, but also allowing for reproduction. So how, how do you kind of look at those broiler breeder diets to maximize egg production, but also ensure the birds stay at a constant weight to also maximize egg production. Uh-huh. This is a, this is the, the the key broiler breeder to try to control the hen weight and also to find the best uh, broiler rooster weight. To have that, we test new body weight profile that we call, and also we help with the a tool the credential is developed that is the measure the onwards of the breast meat. Yeah of the angle of the breast meat. So usually what they do, most of the company, they do by hand. You know, score two, score three, score four, either, either for pullet or roosters. And in the field test that with my client has, uh, we use a continuous value. So it's a tool to measure the angle. Well, let's ask here one example. <laughs> so, yeah. This is so in um, that way they can have a continued value from zero to nine. See, yeah, yeah, love from that. Zero to nine. <laughs> so in yeah, for, because it, they sometimes every week they measure the hen weight or the rooster weight, but sometimes one week they go down or they go much higher than they expected. And they are in, in a big doubt to do the weight again. But when they're doing this one, they will know for sure 
the rooster has losing condition or gain more condition. So this not try to replace the life body weight measurement. They try to give support to them. So in that way, they have more confidence to provide the feed allocations um, for, for, for the breeder flocks. Mm -hmm. That I love that tool. It's so simple. It looks like it's really easy to use. So people actually on farm are more likely to use it. <laughs> That's really important. Um, have you come in, across anything that's been really interesting or kind of like a new development over your years working with the broiler breeders? I know the genetics have changed quite a bit, but is there anything that was kind of surprising? When during during the years, in the breeder has been reducing the body composition, has been changed, has been reducing the the body fat. So. The body fat, the fat reserve has been reducing and the breast meat has been increasing because that characteristic pass to the abrolet chickens also. They have better feed conversion every year and also breast meat at the same time. So the breeder has changed the body composition, has changed in the abdominal fat for them. This is a distinct characteristic about that. Uh, so this indirectly measure the dominant fat by half an another this this is any caliper that you can use. I use this one for measure the dominant fat for pullets. Instead of from 20 weeks to onwards. Mm -hmm. In that way we we know we have two tools, you know, two ways to see what is how, how is reaching at 20 weeks the pullet to have a minimal dominant fat and ensure ensure that egg persistence? So um, as far as the laying cycle goes, what, what are you finding for average cycles for a, a breeding hen right now? I know it's much shorter than a table egg hen. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Usually they start laying 25 weeks until 65 weeks. I have some clients that they even delay 70, 72, because they have a very good egg production, they could persist. And for some companies, they reduce before 60 weeks because, because they're demanding all the chicks, probably chicks. And by this general from 25 to 65 is the length of that period in the breeder. That's a, a lot better than I expected. I knew they were shorter, but that's not not too much shorter. Running <laughs> on the bird. Um, so, so what are what are some of the other things that can be um, unique about being a a, a breeder nutritionist? And you've also got to deal with the roosters. <laughs> so, is it can it be tough to manage both of them together? This isn't. Yeah. Well, the point is in this area. We need two sorts of knowledge, one in the field a lot and one in the, in the studies, the research that they are doing that is limited, but some they're doing in hand and we can extrapolate that, the knowledge from hand passed to broiler breeders, the main aspect. And for any nutritionist that they need to go in this area, they need to be present and they need to do research in this 
even the research part in a university and the most important in the field test. And try to first try to go by himself, by, by himself, try to handle the hands, see all the aspects related to nutrition because it's complex. It's, it's not only nutrition, they are indirectly related to nutrition. So we need to know all the aspects to give the, the, the best message because it's very complex. The hands, uh, they are restricted in feet intake. So the environment, the environment is very, very, uh, I will say the environment can affect 70 to 80% of the performance and 20, 30% they can change by nutrition. So, so the environment, they have a huge impact on the overall uh, a production or life productivity. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, so, so when you move from the you know the breeder house and you go out to the actual production birds, um, how do your kind of theories change as far as your diet formulation? Do you have any uh, big differences that you're that you find between the different types of formulating? Yes, yes. For example, when we they are feeding, for example diets with two breeder diet, breeder one and breeder two diet usually high in protein, high in lysine. Some can tend to deposit more breast meat. And the egg weight is good. It is even a little bit higher the first week, but later on they are two grams or three grams above the standard and they reach 73 grams at 60 weeks, for example, or 74. So that eggs they are losing hatchability for sure. So when we reduce the amino acid, especially lysine, but the other amino acids, they are keep higher to enforce the feather's conditions or the feather cover. In that way, we control the, the egg weight is controlled. It reduces slightly, but the number of eggs are increasing. And you will see that in the data, but also when you measure the flesh here, you will see the hands that are with the high protein, they are like six degrees more than all the others. So the six degrees less, they are they are growing, but steadily and slowly in a controlled way. And the other hands, they have more protein, they, they grow faster, and they have more breast meat, and the egg weight is heavier. So they are characteristic that they easily can be found in diets when change the amino acid. Also, when we change the fiber, the insoluble fiber. Diet, diet with insoluble fiber, they deposit less abdominal fat. Even they have more persistence. So... So even they have more egg, the, the fat deposition is, is less. So here is, there is a distribution from the fat. This is more distribution from the body fat to the eggs. This is another characteristic with, with insoluble fiber in breeder hand. That there is more to research in this area in breeders yeah yeah that is such a niche area that um it's but it's really important because it's how we get all of our chicken nuggets <laughs> so, 
so um so nutrition is is part of the game and housing and environment are a significant portion so when you go out and you visit these farms what are you looking for other than just you know a nutrition consult what do you what what is your checklist when you go to a farm first when i go to the farms i will go I will go for a, a problem that they have, usually. Usually. We have a problem. And, uh, for example, no, if they have a mortality from 20, 25 weeks or 30 weeks in hens, even a rooster. And I usually go and check the water line, the first part. Very simple. Very simple. <laughs> Just very simple. And most of the time, the water line are partially blocked. Oh, no. Yes, partially blocked. So, and also sometimes we open the water lines and they are still be clear, crystal clear as water. They are kind of a gray. So you will see that they need more flashing in this period. It is very simple. And uh, this is, for example, right? And another Another case could be when I go to the farm, they have, for example, hatchability that is reducing after 45, 50 weeks. And I request, of course, the back feather scores that we provide to my client. But if they don't have, I go there and I do my back feather score for the hens. And... First, to have a number, just by visual observation, you will see, okay, they are over over the standard or over the guide, but I do usually the record or the record to have a number. And I check the number, I see, yes. First, the hatchability is coming by the feathered condition. Now, what happened with the feathered condition is very complex because the feathered conditions, if they have a poor feathered condition, can be for different sources. One, the most important is the rooster. Because the rooster could be, the ratio could be high and the rooster could be in very good condition at 25 weeks, very high, high libido. So this libido can be mating a lot, high number of rooster per hens. They can destroy the back feathers. The back feathers, they are like sanding. So they are reducing, reducing until 40, 45, they are, they, they are most of them are gone. And so hence they are taken away from rooster and their fertility drop. This is the first part. The second is the space of the feather. That's the, the feather space per hand. Also, when I go there, I, I would like to go in the morning, the most, if it's not possible, I ask them, but usually I like to see in the morning, very early, to see how is the feed distribution and if they are eating evenly. If they are not eating evening, we know that for sure they will damage the feather condition. They are, and that happens also in lion heads. They have been tested. I see this in the field. I read a lot of paper that they show the same so when the feeder space is shorter, even the stocking density is to grow, they, they are losing feather condition. So this is one part. 
So the feeders, the ratio, and the, and the nutrition also. After I check all the values in the feed, I check the amino acid profile. And the, and the amino acid, and then I make suggestions of the amino acid profile to, to, to the client. So this is one of the main aspects of, of, about that. What I see usually. Yeah. Yeah, I like the simple. Simple is the easiest fix, right? Make sure they're getting water. It's a big deal. <laughs> I'll feed, you know, proper feed. You need to eat beerly. And uh, yeah, I, I, I like to go and make simple tips. Uh, usually the, the most simple is the, the solve the problem. Yes, I, I like that. <laughs> So do you find yourself having to do any like education with the, the people that are working on site? Um, so maybe if the water lines are an issue, you have to basically work with them to show how to flush or any of that, or do you just recommend that they flush and then uh, do nutrition consulting as well? Mm-hmm. well? Well, these are basic, basic stuff that they usually do, just only forget to do or they don't have uh, a protocol of a guide to follow up, you know, kind of uh, quality water control, for example, right? They, they, I suggest to have a quality control guide they need to follow up, and that's it, very simple. Usually, um, they they can do it. What I do, the training, for example, if for back feathers course, I do myself and I like to teach to them how to do that, so I do my record and one partner behind me is doing the same. And sometimes we match it. We do 100 hands and done. He's ready to do. And he's ready to do it later on. Yeah. Um. So so when you do identify that it is a feed issue or just in your daily work, what do you? How do you interact with feed mill managers? Um, what's, what is your role as far as requesting different diets or feed ingredients or that sort of thing? Yep. With, a, with, a, with a feed meal managers, I work more closely with, with them, with some of them, depending who is the, the deal with the client. But for example, for some of them, I need to, just like uh, I work I keep informed of all the steps. For example, if there is new additive that we need to test, I need to inform him. Uh, I need to communicate with him a lot because he will know when is coming the feed additive, when we are going to supply, when the feed is going from the feed mill to the farm, all the during, all the time, you know, all the setup. The feed manager is is a bit helpful. For me, during this process, because he's there, he's there every day, every day, really. Yeah. So, what regions are you normally working in, and what what are the feed stuffs that you're working with? I'm sure it's much different than even where I am in Central Iowa. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, my clients are in Central America. They are in different parts. Yeah. So, so what do you find are typical base ingredients when you move outside of the U- the U.S.? I know. We are a lot of corn and soybean, and then we can put weed in um, or other small byproducts as substitutions for those. But what are what are the diets in South America look like compared to North America? Yeah, in South America, they are 
for for the large company they are pretty similar to to US because they transport the corn the soybean wheat bread and mainly the same for the small client they have they might have some alternative more local alternative but for Asia I would say it's different because they have more race wheat so they are in that way different so the rice by product they have more uh, that kind of stuff are different. They have a blend, also a little bit corn, wheat, and rice. I will say the three of them. A little bit, uh, even DDGs they have also. Yeah. Are Are there any um, unique byproducts that you've had the chance to work with? Of, for the main ingredients? Yeah. Well, one could be, for example, polishing rice. The polishing rice for in China is... is 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 quite quite different than the because they also they are polishing rice in South America, coming from China, but in China they have different kind of different type of rice product polishing policy polishing rice different kind of even they call adi rice adi rice is is the whole rice with the out with a with us with a with a shell I would say. Is the whole. So that that is particular for for that area we work. So is that um, excess coming from a human food market, like as kind of a recycling method, a sustainable recycling, or is it grown specifically for animals? In that part, they're growing specifically for for animals. Yeah, interesting. One, I saw one clients, small clients. Or for lion hens, I started working with lion hens since one year. I, I expand my knowledge about that because I was focused on broiler breeder, but also I started one year ago starting layers. And this is more. And they are um, feeding with um, pet food. Oh, <laughs> Pet food that is, is a little bit more than 12, 12 months and expect a little bit in the border. They are feeding that. And the other client is more one they have uh, they will feed in the they have in the in the line to feed uh fly black fly black soldier. Oh. Black sol black soldier flower. Yeah, black soldier meal. I've seen a lot of research done, but I haven't seen that applied commercially. That's really exciting. Is it? Yeah, they they will apply we're going to, to test this. It's a small, it's, it's a small client. They will do cow. That's that's really interesting. That I'm sure your matrix on your formulator has got a lot of interesting products in there that normal, maybe normal people wouldn't have just because you get the opportunity to work across different sites. <laughs> um. So so how are there any are there any major husbandry differences when you go? or things you need to look for kind of based on the continent that you're working on. Um, I would think maybe in, in South America, the weather would have a different role to play versus, um, you know, China or elsewhere just from the time of year and how long it's warm <laughs> compared to other places that might, you know, get cold for part of the year. Yeah, that that, that is a, a little bit different. For example, in the summer is starting... December, January, February. This is the peak in for 
for for for for example in Peru, Bolivia, they are in summer right now, and they have most of them they have open house in breeders. You know there are a few houses in in closed house in Bolivia so far they have closed closed house, but they still they still pass the heat stress. This is quite different than than US. US right now is winter. So yeah, that that is different than and in Central America is quite di- is uh, it's special because in theory is similar than US supposed to be winter but the winter for them is the lowest is seventeen Celsius so it's it's not <laughs> it's not so winter but they call winter in the January February. And in summer, actually, yeah, they go 28 Celsius, 30 Celsius, it's a little bit more close to this. So, so what's, are there sorts of different diets that you employ um, for the places that are staying warmer for longer? I know that there are certain additives that shouldn't be used, you know, when it's, it's warm out because of heat stress, like for, for coxie, for example. Um, but do you have a tougher time controlling some of those parasitic diseases with with our the additives that are available to you just because the temperature never really fluctuates. Doesn't it? Usually during the summer, I recommend using some special additive. It what? Um, I do it in that period. I recommend two or three additives that is very useful for that. Yeah, I can say, for example, betaine, you know, is a commodity, you know, particular brand, or, but additive is, is very useful. I use that. Mm-hmm. They have vitamin C also. I use that. For what are the markets like? Um, I'm just mostly familiar with the United States market. The way the bird is marketed will change what you're allowed to feed it. So... Are you seeing a lot of uh, vegetarian diets in, in the houses that you formulate for? Are you seeing a preference for, you know, natural ingredients, if you will? Um, that are maybe not as much emphasized in other parts of the world as it is in the United States. That's it. Well, I have, um, for example, in Central America, we have uh, meat and bone meal. So we have animal protein. And in in South America, we have more veggies protein. I would say more more soybean meal, more corn protein, a little bit, and then full fat soy. Also, we have that protein. Does the marketing influence what you're able to do as much as it does in the United States? Like, are products marketed as, you know, vegetarian fed? Are the broiler, the broiler meat or the eggs that would be sold? Well, it's not too much. In Latin America, for example, they are not like Europe, you know, they are focusing more in organic, chicken, welfare. In Latin America, they are not yet. Some companies, they are working that because some companies supply, for example, for McDonald's, even Latin America, but 
a small part of the chickens, a small proportion of the chicken. They go for what kind of organic or free of antibiotics. But the most of them still continue using antibiotics. Not all of them. They have said NASA or the USDA from each country. They are their own rules and they are banning so antibiotics. But most of them, they are using. They still they are using antibiotics, for example. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think that would be uh, a part of your consulting that would be um, almost difficult to remember where where you are, what you're feeding, and what you're allowed to feed, just because there's so many different markets across the United States and in in uh, the different Americas and also in China. So you have a really interesting clientele. <laughs> That's probably a, a part of your job you like. You get to uh, use your use your brain in many different ways. <laughs> And sometimes we do, uh, with my clients, I do internal field test research for buried chickens. And they they give me the potential to increase the, my knowledge and to apply it in my client tower. You know, there are no different countries. They are no competitors. So there's no problem to share that information with them. So oh, they yeah, gain. exactly. So what do you do on a day-to-day basis? So if, if somebody was interested in becoming an industry nutritionist, like what can they expect on a weekly basis? What do you do? Well, I would say read, read papers. <laughs> First, the, the nutritionist, they, they need to like to, to, to read papers, poultry science, British science, that kind of first science. And then also magazines. They they have some commercial input. They have some information. They are good. Uh, they, this is the start. This is what I do. And they do a formulation, of course. And then communication with the clients. The best way. Try to to deal with different personalities, different different countries in different regions. You know, try to deal with them. So that is the part also that I do usually every every day, I will say. No? So what, what percentage of your week do you think that you're, let's say, at your home office working versus out on a client location? The percentage that I do, for example, for, for a week base, I can do 10 or 20% formulations. Like thirty to forty percent meta analysis. Just normally read. I go to the read and do try to make a model very simple to try to make an output, a results, uh, the best receipt for them, the best solution in whatever topic. And another, I will say twenty thirty percent meetings. By, by either by online, you know, meeting. Uh-huh. This is, I will say also 5, 10%, a small percentage is meetings online with uh, external companies that they try to test new products, new additives, and sometimes they have good information, so also that part of that. Yeah, that's a good split. It, it it keeps every day just a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. So you definitely won't get bored. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. 
And also, it's not, uh, sometimes it's not different um, to work in the office, you know, eight hours or usually. Sometimes I work 10 hours, 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's like this because it's, this is like a hobby, you know, for me it's a hobby reading some paper, reading, doing analysis, doing my job for me is, is what I like it. Are, are there any, um, big changes that you see happening in broiler nutrition? Um, I know that, uh, protein ratios and lysine are kind of, have been, and they're becoming even more of a hot topic, but are you seeing those trends in commercial nutrition? With lysine or other protein ratios? That's it. That's it. Well, with with the price has been increasing, you know, in general, either for energy and protein source. But I, I see more opportunities for the clients to reduce a little bit the energy. Not too much, depending if they are in match or pellet. By reducing the energy, we save a lot of money. For sure, you will lose one or two points of heat conversion, but when we increase the amino acid profile, not only in the level, also in the ratios, we, if we cope that, we recover these two, even we go more, three or four, five, six points more. So in that way, we not only reduce the price, overall of the feed, also we have more feed, more feed conversion. So we reduce the number of days in the cheeks. This is what I was doing with some clients in this in this last time because the price has been going up. Um, yes, it's kind of a, we need to, I'll, I'll be testing out having very good results, the clients. Listen. Um, what would you say the normal client tolerance is for fluctuation in price? Is it something as small as, you know, pennies per ton, or do they are they more tolerant based on the amount that their product is selling for? So, or in other words, when do they make you reformulate? If if something changes five cents per ton, do they make you reformulate, or is that something that they're willing to live with because of the price of the different inputs? Huh? Well, when when the price has been changed, for example, for soybean accord significantly, for sure, well, well, I do the reformulation. I do the reformulations, but usually I change. I usually constantly we test new ratios of the nutrients either for amino acids amino, or, or energy. So we we test it in there, and then we have the results. We know, okay, this is the best economic way to go, and we reformulate again. So we do more by, not, by, not too much by the price when they change. For example, if the core is $5,650, Dollar per metric ton, if they have 651 or 49, one or two dollars, they will not make change. They will not change too much. But they change ten dollar, twenty dollar above, below, there might be a significant change in the formulation. Um, yeah, that, that is the, the way that we, that I manage with those, with those clients. 
Yeah, that it makes total sense. If you have a slightly more extensive diet, that really positively changes something else. Doesn't it? Listen. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, so when you're when you're working with the different producers across the world, um, what is your what is their normal flock size? Like how how fast can you determine if if your diet's working? That is for broiled chicken is quickly, quickly, quickly. They this fast is one week, two weeks. You will know that is. It will, it will be a change. For breather, they take time, four weeks at least. In two weeks, you will see 50, 50% of the, of the change, but at four weeks, you will, say, you will see the 100% improvement of the diet. So we'll say breather four weeks and chicks immediately, one week. Really quick. <laughs> well, they always tell you the answer really quick because they grow so fast. Well, man. Um, are you are you seeing that there's any resurgence in popularity for different types of commercial broiler strains? Um, you know, there's the the big Ross or Cobb or you know whatever your favorite strains are. But we've seen um, in the United States a resurgence of the slower growing broiler or you know the multi-purpose bird like a ranger. Are there are there any of those sorts of birds that you feed on a commercial level? Well, in Latin America, we don't have this slow growing, this line. We have mainly Coban rose. Mm-hmm. And in China, we have a special, a special brand. It's not either Cor, Cor or Rose. They have their own Sanner. We call called Sanner line. It's a Chinese white feather line. So, and they behave deep, yes. Similar than cop and rose, either in breeders and very chickens, most or less similar. And yeah, this is this is the if your question was there was difference for cop and rose in terms of nutrition. That was your question or no? Yeah, it was it was it was both. You guys, I think you answered it well. I I was just kind of curious if. If other other countries are seeing a resurgence and people that are, you know, looking for alternative breeds, if you will. Um, but also I was curious about what their popular breeds are. So I think you got <laughs> you got it. Um, are, but do you do you have any preferences for types of diets when you're feeding uh, Cobb, Ross or any of the, um, you know, like the the Chinese broiler, for example? Like, are there things that you know have to be different just because of the background of the bird? Mm-hmm. For broiled chick, for either for breeders and broiled chickens, we do the same. The same formulation is the best. The same, the same profile, the same that we are tested internally diets uh, and they help both cobo rolls similar. Mm-hmm. They became the same. Simple is better, right? Yeah. We try the, and, and the female is better because there's one type of diet and that's it. How many diets are you typically formulating? Is it in like, you know, the depending on the bird age, I guess, you know, four to seven diets, or are you able to work with the feed mill to change it more frequently if you're doing a research trial? Yeah, usually 
we do five breeder dive if there is 34, 40 days. If there is one client of 29, 30 days, we have four. So four diets and five diets usually that I manage for broiler breed, broiler chickens. The broiler chickens, yeah. Yeah, it sounded like the breeders, once they start producing eggs, have just got two simple diets. <laughs> yeah, for, for breeder, I, I have breeder one, breeder two in the layer. We can layer one, layer two, layer, layer three. <laughs> we have three. Even for one client, they have layer four. And even because they have for some time, they have they extended to 72, 73 weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I suppose the older bird will need a different sort of management than the, the mm-hmm. younger. Yeah, <laughs> to control really. that every week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so do you do you have a preference between feeding the actual broiler meat birds or the breeders, or do you just kind of find it all interesting? Well, all are interesting. Yeah, both are interesting. But more interesting, I would say, the breeder because it's more aspect, you know? More aspect, yeah. They are more broiled chicken, 30, 35, 40 days. That's it. Seem very fast. <laughs> the number is more, more complex. More fun, I would say. Yeah, so what's it like since you've stepped into the laying hen world? Um, is, it a, is it a lot different uh, formulating the the meat bird breeder diets versus the, the layer diets for egg production? I mean... I think your calipers to measure the birds must be a lot smaller <laughs> for the actual layer hens. <laughs> yeah, I have uh, guides, for example, for number of angles for breeders, some guidelines, but I don't have this for layer because I started, as mentioned, working one year ago with some small clients. And uh, yeah, definitely they need to be used, maybe this use for, for breeder, I started from four weeks onwards but for layers should be a little bit more you know six to eight i didn't test this from from layers but it should be the same principle always uh-huh. yeah it's a much different bird size right <laughs> for the table eggs versus the the others so is there is there anything um that has been hard lately for your job that you've been able to solve like what are some big problems that you've been able to fix lately in your consulting work? For example, for broiled chickens, we reduce the number of days. We improve the feed conversion during the, during the time. We reduce the feed conversion significantly. So, so they were happy they gained more money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in breeders, in breeders, we have... For example, we increase the persistence of a production yeah. for some clients. Other clients, we improve the hatchability also in the last yeah. weeks. And also, the small quantity, we control the double job eggs. We try oh. to control the double job eggs. Yeah. No. That part is very sensitive because when we increase the double job, we try to increase the probability of hen mortality also. Yeah. And so in that way, they also they see you know, the change when we control the double joke, we yeah. see positive results in that. I, I spoke to someone a while ago who was interested in 
double yoke, but they they saw it as a positive thing. Yeah, they need to be a minimum. Yeah. They need to be a minimum. This is too. And usually they go to the peak at 28, 27, and that, if that, they go to, for example, in breather, they go to, they can go 25, 2.5, and they, they go down. At the 40 weeks, they need to go to 0.2. And then they keep below 0.2 and they go up above 0.2, the mortality will go up worse. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Working with nature and not against it. Chickens fed AX3 Digest consume significantly less feed and water to produce one pound of meat. Successful flock performance is determined during the first 10 days post-placement. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that most improved in barn performance, bird health, and a drier litter. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Why do you think that's connected? Do you think uh, one of the yolks maybe gets ovulated and then they get like a infection in their well, they are abdomen? because they are more double jokes more peritonitis yeah and for for some reason they are increasing the feed intake too much as expected oh. they are eating too much as, as expected to be they are producing more of course when they feed it they produce more but also the hang weight is growing and you will see the double yoke that is going up and you know that the reason is because the metabolism was too fast, so they are producing too much. But all this started at in the peak, so we need to go a slow feeding day until the feed peak. Uh, for example, if there are four percent, five percent, no some flocks that there are six percent of double job in percentage of that total X. Because some express total hen, but it's total eggs should be more act more sensitive. So in the past, for example, there are six percent and we reduce five slowly, slowly we reduce it. Now they are in two point five, two point eight, barely they go to three percent. And now they have better hen mortality in general. Yeah, that yeah, that's interesting, especially on the for the longevity of the bird that would be a bad <laughs> to have that spike and then have issues with mortality in the flock. Huh. Yeah, those sound like really good and interesting problems to solve. <laughs> um, has there have there been any like categories of feed additives that you really you have really liked to work with? Um, just from like an efficacy standpoint. Uh-huh. I know you don't have to mention brands. I don't really want to hear a brand or anything, but I know I know some people really like. You, certain types of additives they seem to help whatever issue they're having. <laughs> well, the additives that um, have been working um, have been consistent results and they are uh, now are testing new different kinds of the essential oil. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has been positive either when we put on, on top of antibiotics. Yeah. yeah. They are working good. This is a good potential to include. Uh, yeah. This is, for example, one additive that I can't mention. Have you um, done many trials with oregano or oregano oil? Yeah, that kind of. I have interested in It's the most popular, more consistent also. There's others that I, I will test. Also, they have positive influence against mycoplasma, for example. And, uh, but this area is very, is very broad and a new area to, to learn more every day, I believe. It's a huge area. Yeah. The, the reason I ask is because if you're, if you're trying to do a trial with anything that is oregano, it's hard to not know it's there because it has such a distinct smell. <laughs> Well, I, it's reminds me of like a pizza, so I kind of like the smell. <laughs> it would be it would be hard to have a, a double blinded trial if you're using essential oils because everybody would know. <laughs> but sure, yeah, there are some other ones that have uh, other types that have really strong smells that I really I really like. So you can tell if the feed mill added them in because you can smell them. <laughs> You won't have trouble knowing that it got added correctly. <laughs> we we've been chatting for a good fifty minutes or so. Is there is there anything else that you want to add to our discussion or have any advice for anybody that is thinking about becoming a nutritionist? You had some really good advice earlier. Well, for for the new nutritionists, well, if they are thinking about that. I will say that they need to look first inside him to see what is belief, what is my passion inside me, what is made me this happy or not. If they feel inside that they will feel them happy in the long term, I will say go go for them. But I sure do enjoy nutrition, so I, I love talking to other people that have a passion for it too, especially when some of the problems that you listed are, are not small. They're big problems, right, for a producer if you can't solve those. So I think it, it sounds like you really, really enjoy what you do and you have a great time doing it. <laughs> so, Dr. Sandro, thank you again for your time today. This was, was really awesome, and I, I hope uh, the listeners really enjoyed your expertise. Thank you, Lisa. A pleasure with you and chat. <laughs>